I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. Carry me, Carol, and take me away. Take me to Portugal, take me to Spain. Andalusia with fields full of grain. I have to see you again and again. Take me, Spanish caravan. Yes, I know you can. recognize that song as the Doors' Spanish Caravan, and it is. But it's been reimagined by my guest today on the program, Ian Goeth. Let me tell you a little bit about Ian Goeth. Now, before I get to that, there's a story I want to tell you about a story that was told to me. When I first got to college, my professor in one of my English classes was telling us a story about the novelist William Faulkner. And she told this story about how William Faulkner had a daughter And it was her birthday. She was turning like eight years old. And she went upstairs and said, Dad, to William Faulkner, come down to my birthday party. And William Faulkner wouldn't answer the door. And there was a hushed silence in the room where we all thought, William Faulkner, what a prick. Then the following year in college, I was in another English class. And my professor told a story. This time, the story was about Ernest Hemingway. And Ernest Hemingway's daughter, on her eighth birthday was having a party. And you guessed it, she went upstairs to see if her dad would come down to the party. Dad, she said through the door, please come down to my eighth birthday party. Because kids always like to specify the number of the birthday they're celebrating. And Ernest Hemingway, as the story goes, didn't answer the door. And everyone in the room who heard that story thought, Ernest Hemingway, what a prick. Well, by the time I got to my junior year, I was in yet another English class because at that point, I had declared myself to be an English major, firmly committing myself to a major uh, that would guarantee when I graduated from college, I would uh, be teaching tennis. Anyway, I was in that class, and the professor told us a story (laughs) about uh, a famous author whose daughter was having her eighth birthday party. The author in question this time around was Ralph Ellison. Well, on the occasion of Ralph Ellison's daughter's eighth birthday, the young girl walked up the stairs and knocked on the door of her dad's study to see if her father would come down and celebrate her birthday with her. Ralph Ellison never answered the door. (laughs) So I'd heard this story three times. Oh, yeah, by the way, what a prick we all thought. You get the pattern. So, by this point, I'd heard three iterations of the story, and I didn't know who to believe. 
Were all American authors pricks? Surely not. Did all those guys even have daughters? I don't know. I never checked. But I can tell you one thing. That story may have happened. Uh, It also may not have happened. It's just one of those apocryphal stories that English professors use to, I don't know what, to uh, have anecdotal moments in between their lectures where everyone can go, wow, writers are monsters to their children. So, why am I telling you all this? Well, because I'm going to tell you a story about an American writer that is actually true. And I know it's true because I heard him say it in person when I saw him read many years ago. The author was Hunter S. Thompson, and the story he told was about when he began his writing career and he had no confidence in his abilities as a writer. So what did the young Hunter S. Thompson do? Uh, He grabbed a gun and shot it around the backyard for fun. Uh, No, that's not what he did, although he may have done that. That's not what he did. He picked up The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald, and he typed it on a typewriter, the entire book. Why? Because he wanted to feel what it was like to write those great sentences. That story, I can promise you, is true. So, why have we arrived at this point in the podcast where I'm telling you stories about writers that may or may not have been pricks to their kids and others who typed the great books on a typewriter? There is a reason, and I'm getting to it right now. When Ian Goeth was just a young boy, he wanted to play guitar. But... Because he wasn't taking guitar lessons, he only could do one thing, and that was sit in his room, listen to the music that really rang his bell, and try to play it himself. Listen, if you want to see how something works, well, take it apart. Then put it back together again. If you can't put it back together again, (laughs) you haven't really learned how it works. Ian Goeth was like that. He would take songs apart, and put them back together again until he knew them forwards and backwards. And to be totally fair, Ian wasn't really choosing easy songs. He was playing music by Yes, Genesis, Camel, a lot of progressive stuff, and that stuff is not easy. But he sat in his room, and he figured it out. And then when William Faulkner's daughter knocked on the door and said, please come down and celebrate my eighth birthday party, Ian Goeth didn't answer the door. Uh, no, that didn't happen. He would have answered the door. He's a very nice guy, as you'll see. Anyway, that's how Ian Goeth got his start, taking things apart and putting them back together again. Now, Ian's story is fascinating. He was born to an Armenian family in Iran, and from there, his journey goes from England to Baltimore to Los Angeles, and along the way, he scored a number one dance song in Italy, got married, put the guitar down for over a decade, got divorced, and then rediscovered his love of playing guitar by way of the flute. Yes, the flute. He'll explain that, but before he does, let me say this. Ian's album, Memento, is a straight-up stunner, an out-of-the-box, stone-cold classic that's filled with flamenco finesse and virtuoso instrumentation. This guy is the real deal, a guitar player with heart, soul, and the kind of musical instincts that seem nothing short of divine. Ian Goeth plays with dexterity and touch, and his interpretations of numbers by everyone from the Bee Gees to the choral are otherworldly. What about his own compositions? Well, let me say this. They will knock you out. Ian felt like an old friend. I loved chatting with him, and I hope you love this conversation. So, enjoy it. Here's me and Ian Goeth, right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. 
14 years old, that's the time I decided I wanted to play guitar, to learn how to play the guitar. When I was 12 years old, I heard the song Spanish Caravan by The Doors. And that, uh, you know, the intro on that song, the flamenco guitars, like, kind of mesmerized me and mesmerized me. And I was like, okay, I want to learn how to play the guitar. And then over the years, um, it, I would say, to answer your question, uh, in my 20s, that's when I said, okay, I'm a guitar player. I know you're a self-taught musician, so I'm wondering... As a young man of 14 playing the guitar, what did you find to be the most fun about that experience as you were feeling your way around the instrument? It was, you know, for me, the, the fun part was learn, learning other people's songs or writing songs because to me, practicing was extremely boring. You know, to me, I, I was never kind of the guy who sat down and practiced for hours or learned scales. Uh, so to me, it was just, okay, You, I hear a song, I wanted to learn how to play. That's how I actually learned how to play guitar, by learning songs, but, but not by practicing. So basically what it was like, it's like you would take a song, and the challenge to yourself was, okay, let's see if I can, if I can figure this out and pull it apart and, and then play it myself. So it's almost like you were doing a kind of musical puzzle. Exactly. Yeah, especially back then, you know, uh, that there was no internet, you know, so you just relied on your ears and, you know, playing, fooling around with it and until you figure out the puzzle, as you say. I had a friend who we would go to dinner and he then he would go and he would try to recreate what he had eaten without consulting anything. He would just go on intuition and see if he could figure out what was that meal I just had. Let me see if I can go to the kitchen and figure it out. And so I could see him when we were eating, I could see him thinking about what it was he was eating. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it reminds me of a similar process for you with hearing a song and saying, well, let me see if I can figure out the ingredients to that without anyone telling me what they are. Yes. And by trial and error, you know, using being creative and, you know, that's the thing, you know, if you practice the same way, but if you play the wrong way, no matter how much you play, how many hours you play, still at the end, it's the wrong notes. So by, you know, just be having the open mind to keep trying different things. Like, you know, your friend, okay, you know, he's like, uh, what can I add? What's missing? What's the ingredients that I, that's missing? What can I add to it to even make it better, maybe, you know? When you did that, was there, there must have been people where you, when you figured it out, you went, wow, that person, <laughs> that person really put together a, a remarkable song so is that how you first started to realize who you were attracted to musically um, pretty much i was when i was younger i was more of a fan of prog rock music more complicated music you know so yeah because you know your perfectionist in you you wants to do play complicated music you know i these days, I look at it totally differently. The way I look at it is like perfectionism kills creativity. But when I was young, I would be proud. I'm a perfectionist, you know. I was uh, drawn into more uh, complicated music when I was young, you know, and uh, trying to figure those parts out. And a lot of it I couldn't, you know, to be honest with you. It's just like when you uh, hear something that you really love, 
that's the motivator, motivating factor for me. Okay, I want to learn this song. Who was a guitar player who it took you a long time to figure out? Who who were some of the presented the most challenges to you? Well, Steve Hackett would be one for sure. Yeah. Um, and Andrew Latimer of Camel, another prog rock band from England. I love Camel and um, you know uh, King Crimson. Um, yeah, the uh, you know early seventies prog rock bands. Uh, I was at, uh, into them in the at that time, but you know it changes. You go through phases, then you go into you know some few years you're into. Uh, I don't know, Fusion, like Chikoria, Aldiniola, mm. and, uh, you know, then, you know, I like so many different types of music, you know, and then the, the 80s British uh, bands such as The Cure, The Smiths, Psychedelic Furs, so, you know, you go through different phases in your life, but, you know, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I like everything, so... Uh, Therefore, I like to write everything, not just one style of music. Right. Keeps it more interesting, more fun. When I was 15, I got into the doors, and it just made me want to be a writer. It made me want to write poetry. It made me want to express myself through words. And and you heard the doors, and it made you want to play guitar. So it's really interesting to me how that band could inspire people on two different, probably even more than two, but on so many different levels. Totally, yeah. I mean, to me, the doors were like somehow, I don't know what's the right word, accessible. Like, like, oh, I can do this myself. You know, I don't know part of it, except like there were some like Spanish caravan, the intro, it is complicated, you know, at time signature or that, or that. But at the same time, to me, doors music was, um, you know, simple. At the same time, it was blues but you know with Jim Morrison's voice and uh, the interesting uh, arrangements of the song made it like to me it was more uh, I can do this one when I would hear the Doors tune and it gets your juices flowing at the same time yeah you know and I think Robbie Krieger is uh, in many ways I think a very underrated player I have to agree with you on that for sure the precision of his playing um, is remarkable. What was it about the Smiths? I mean, they're such a lyrically driven band as well. Well, uh, the Smiths, I'm Morris's voice. His voice, I mean, you know, is uh, heaven. When, I, when you hear his, him singing, it's like it's heavenly, you know. And Johnny Marr, you know, his guitar uh, work. It's just the overall sound, you know, that... Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, this, uh, somehow, also there's a certain melancholy in Smiths that I like, you know, that I was, I was always drawn to, you know, that British uh, sound, uh, like the Echo and the Bonnie Man, you know, and, oh, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's a personal thing, you know, I mean, you know, but yeah, I mean, the, I've always, always loved uh, that British sound. You know, I imagine that you that you must be a very patient person to be able to sit down and have no um, instruction on how to figure something out. And just like just you and your guitar and a song that you like where you try to sort of reverse engineer it, pick it apart, figure it out, puzzle it out. 
Um, would you describe yourself as being a patient guy? Um, yes, I've been told that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, uh, my friends would like tell me like, you must be really patient to sit in your room all alone, all day long, trying to figure this song out versus they'll be want to go out and go whatever, go have fun, partying, uh, doing, playing sports or whatever they would do. But to me, I was like, I could always uh, be, I was always fine being alone. And uh, as long as I had my guitar, and uh, I was totally fine with that. So yeah, I was a pa- I am a patient person. I think so. And do you find that you are, in terms of being a practitioner, do you play every day? And I, and I ask because a lot of people who listen to the show are aspiring musicians who I think it's very instructive for them to hear. You know, here's how a professional musician does. I mean, do you play every day? No. Simple answer is no. I, I did not. I mean, um, like I said, part of the reason is because um, to me, again, practicing was boring, you know. Right. So, and, uh, you know, and you have to be, uh, um, you know, to get into that zone where you want to play or create, it doesn't come that often, you know. It's not, it, I just, I wish I could just tap into that, like, boom, whenever I want to getting creative and being that mood to uh, even though you you have I'm a patient person but again if it's not coming to you what's the point of just um, going over and over and over of the same thing where you're not there's no progress I'd rather step back do something else you know well yeah do something else be creative but do something else it could be something as simple as, you know, okay, let's change the tuning on the guitar. Let's do, you know, uh, open, find a new tuning, make it, create your own tuning on the guitar. And then that motivates me. It, it, uh, it inspires me to keep playing or to come up with something new or pick up another instrument, you know. And, you know, yeah, I'm not that kind of a guy who would practice for hours and hours. I get that. And I, I almost think that the time away from the instrument is as much a part of the process as the playing of it is. Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, uh, like, uh, who was it? Jean-Pierre Jean, uh, Rampel, the French flautist. He would say every year for one month, he would put the flute away. He was a classical uh, jazz uh, flautist. Uh, away. And then when he would come back after a month, pick it up, he was a better player. And to me, sometimes it's hard because, you know, with we, we, like, I literally have to put the guitars in the case and put it in the closet because <laughs> if I want to do that. Otherwise, if it's out there, I will pick it up. If it's in front of me, I will pick it up. Right. It's too tempting. Yeah. Yeah. You know, for me as a writer, there are times where I know if I sit down right now and I try to write, it's not going to be good because I, I, I'm feeling like I could do anything right now, but write. even though I know I should do it. I just feel like it's probably more important to not do it. Yeah. You got to do what you got to do. Whatever feels right. You cannot force it. Right. That's right. I mean, 
And also you're an interesting case because you are, you're very self-directed. It's not as though somebody said to you, Ian, here's a guitar. Your lesson is tomorrow at four, get ready. Like that didn't happen for you. You were all self-directed. And so you were in control of your craft from the very beginning. Yes, I, I was. I mean, there were a lot of things that I know now. I would, I mean, I would do things differently, you know. Uh, uh, you know, for example, you know, uh, because of the perfectionism, you know, there was a lot of things that I that had written that I uh, uh, because I said no, it's not good, so I killed the project. Uh, what I know now, for example, I would work with people a lot more, collaborate with other people, because that you you that you learn a lot by working with other people. And uh, sometimes all it takes is like you you have a riff or something you're playing on, you're doing that on your own, and you're like, ah, I'm not sure if this is any good. But your friend or your buddy or person you're working with or a co-writer, hey, Ian, what was that? Play that again. Play, play that again. Let me hear that. Mm. And that encourage oh maybe there is something here so you know maybe this is good so then I get um, more uh, inspired like okay maybe this is good let me work on this some more let's let's add on to this you know so yeah working with other people I would re- highly recommend people <laughs> I mean, young musicians to do that because you learn a lot do you consider yourself to be somebody who works very well with other other musicians. Well, that would depend on the person, depending, you know, because there are personalities, different personalities here involved, you know, uh, for the past, um, especially when it comes to writing lyrics, in the past 10 years, I've worked with a, a good friend of mine, Amanda Mosier, we've written, I don't know, uh, eight songs plus minus together. And that's a perfect example where, you know, uh, some of the ideas or some uh, the chord progressions I would play. If I was on my own, I would not be too crazy about it. But when Manda comes up with the melody on top of the chord progression, uh, then all of, all of a sudden I'm like, oh, this is this sounds good. I uh, In the past, like I said, I, I did not work with a lot of people, but in the last 10 years, Especially instrumentals is a little bit different, but again, there's nothing. I mean, even that, if I find the right uh, personality to work with, so you know how it is. Sometimes you just get along with certain people. Same thing with like a producer. When you're working with a producer, sometimes it's just it, it just clicks. Right. Whether it's the sense of humor, whether it's uh, the personality, so you know. But you know what? If you're working with somebody, that's what I'm saying. If you work with, you try to work with so many, many different people as you can. Maybe this person will do every, from every person you learn something. Even from the person you with that the person you didn't it didn't click, you learn something. That's interesting to me because it's it's almost like dating, where you're halfway through a first <laughs> date and you go, "This isn't going to go anywhere," but I'm learning <laughs> why, right? Like it's instructive. exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it is like dating. <laughs> but you but when it's working, it's working and that's magic. And that's that's those moments where you go, okay, this is I can lock into this. Um and you can learn why that is. I mean, sometimes you can't even articulate it, but it's a feeling. Right, right. Yeah, on, uh, on my album uh, last the album Memento, I worked with Jim Scott, uh, the legendary Jim Scott, the producer engineer. And uh, that, I mean, that's how I was with him. It just clicked from the day, day one. 
And, uh, you know, uh, we had a meeting and then we even decided not to even re rehearse with the band before we go into the studio. Because, you know, I, luckily I knew the guys who are fantastic musicians uh, and uh, they're pros. And then we, we decided to let the magic happen. Let's just capture it, you know, let's not rehearse. And uh, with uh, Jim Scott, you know, uh, he was like, okay, Ian, you, you cannot tell me you don't. Let's say there's something that's bothering me that I don't like. He, he said, like, you have to tell me why you don't like it. So we can fix it. So the communication, yeah, communication is very important, just like, you know, dating, you know, I mean, uh, uh, communication is the key. Well, it's huge if yeah, you're dating right. somebody and, and things aren't going well. If you don't tell them why something's not going well, then they don't know. And so that thing that's not going well just keeps not going well. Right. You've got to be honest. Right. Be honest, communicate, and if it doesn't, maybe if it's not meant to be, then hey, you'll save time. <laughs> I know, but you know, Ian, I got to tell you, I'm 49, and it's taken me. It took me about 48 years to finally be able to say to somebody, "I don't think that's working." In other words, I'm. It's much easier for me to say no, or this isn't working now than it than it was for me at. 47. I mean, I think I came to it late. Um, so how were you in terms of being able to communicate that you were saying, Jim was kind of saying to you, Hey, you got to let me know. Was that something that was kind of hard for you at first? Um, no, you know why it wasn't because before I went in there, because, you know, I was a little bit nervous because, you know, Jim Scott, you know, yeah, he is one of my favorites, you know, I mean, uh, so before I went in there, I, I prepared myself. I said to myself, you got to be uh, open-minded. You got to let things, let's say there is something that's bugging you, give it time, let it breathe. You know, don't make decisions right away. And then, again, communicate. If it's something that's bothering you, then you'll work it out. And uh, like I said, luckily, Jim was kind of his personality. I loved his personality. You know, he's just uh, he was a very fun person to work with. He was uh, very open and uh, sincere, genuine person. No ego here. You know, there is no, it was none of that. So again, because of the part of it that worked for me is because of the, the personalities work together. How are you in terms of it's kind of a funny question and, and I and I but I really mean it is how are you with ego? Um do you find that you can take criticism pretty well or do you is there a moment where you feel a little wounded and then you have to take a minute and just kind of go, All right, uh you were right. Um how good are you at taking a note? You know, when I was younger younger it was more difficult. But again, I've learned started studying my own observing my own behavior and being aware of that see the thing is like if my if somebody says something to me and my if i get my ego gets hurt i'm like wait wait a minute they're external i don't have the, i don't have control over the external why should i let the external bother me control my emotions so I don't know. It's maybe because I'm more self-confident now than when I was young, younger. 
I know who I am. I know what my abilities are. Right. You know, I know how, you know, there, there are guitar players who always will be better than me. And there are certain aspects of me, I am good at it. So once, once you, know, you know your abilities uh, and then accept your things that you cannot do, lack of your ability, abilities, then, then you should, you're fine. So why should I get bothered? And when somebody tells me something, you know, I will listen to it and I would analyze it. Is this true or is this wrong? Partially, partially true? Does it make sense? Then, I, you know, I kind of like, you know, let it breathe. I don't make quick decisions as I used to anymore, you know. So then let it breathe. And then the answer will come to you. Right. And another thing is you never know what is the correct answer. You know, uh, you, there is no, uh, again, what you, think, what you think is the perfect sound or the mix today, maybe a year from now you listen to it, you're like, ah, I don't like it as much. And same, the opposite, something you don't like today, six months from now, two years from now, you're like, ooh, this is good. Or learning to let go, learning to let go, uh, that's another part of uh, moving forward and being creative. And you're right. Yeah. I mean, that, that's hard to do at 23. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yes, I know. <laughs> right? I, I mean, yeah. I don't think I, I didn't take criticism very well at 23, but I can certainly take it well now because like what you're saying, if there's, if there's truth in it, and I'm exactly. and I'm acquainted with that truth. I know it's I know it's accurate. Yeah, and the truth you're honest with yourself. Again, I don't care about the external because I don't want. I mean, um, it's always you always want acknowledgement and approval from the external. It's always nice, but at one point in your life, you know, as for example, everybody wants approval from their parents. For example, right. But at one point, I decided like you know what, I'm not going to play that game. As long as I am happy with it, as long as I'm honest with myself, not trying to be somebody who I'm not, then things will fall in its place. And another thing is I'm still learning, and I I will always be learning, even not just about music and creativity, but life, about behavior. Yeah, that's the way I like to look at it, to make my life easier for me. You're a holiday, such a holiday. You're a holiday, such a holiday. It's something that thinks worthwhile. The puppet makes you smile If not, then you're throwing stones Throwing stones, throwing stones Ooh, it's a funny game Don't believe that it's all the same Can't think what I've just said Put the soft pillow on Why am I 
your parents for for your musical direction no i did not wow really yeah i did not it's just well their background where what their thinking was uh that oh musicians are oh you're gonna be a drug addict you're gonna not make any money you know things like that that's what um what they were thinking so yeah that's another another thing i had to fight you know, which was um, tough. But like I said, at one point, I said, you know what? I don't need their uh, approval. It's my life. I, you got to do stand up for what you believe in, what will make you happy. You know, if I get uh, a job with a good pay, it might make my parents happy, but it's not going to make me happy. Right. Right. So, you know, again, I, I learned uh, like, okay, because even my parents, okay, they're external to me so I love them but I'm not gonna let them control my emotions you know does again doesn't matter my parents my neighbors my even your spouse you know you gotta uh, create your own happiness. You got to be honest with yourself and, you know, you have your abilities and, uh, you know, so know your abilities and uh, create your own happiness. So, again, I'm, I'm talking about more of a behavior, uh, observing behavior uh, right now than music, but then, you know, it works in every aspect of life though, when, you know, to me, at least anyway. Yeah, and and I think that that's a hard-fought victory because your parents can really get into your head. Um, you know, for me, I decided somewhere in my late 30s that I didn't need that approval, but it, it really did take me a long time uh, because you want it. You You want your parents to pull you aside and say, you know, we're incredibly proud of this path you Proud take. of you. Right. Yeah. Right. And and th- and that ne- it's so easy for us to figure out, but it's so hard for them to say. And you know, there are there are drug addict lawyers too. It's not you know drug addiction, ah, right? It's like you can absolutely, pick, exactly. You know? I don't. Yeah. 
That's so true, but somehow they don't see it. But yeah, I'm just like you. I was in my late 30s, actually, when I said, okay, enough is enough. I don't need my parents' approval. Because to me, I want, I think it was my friend of mine who told me when you want an approval from the external, external, it's like you're a beggar. You're begging for attention. Just like a little kid. Look at me. Look at me. Right. And I said, hmm. I don't want to be a beggar anymore. Sometimes uh, some certain words like click with you more than other, you know, yeah. to me like, oh, I don't want to be a beggar. I was like, I saw it in a different way. I'm like, huh. To be wanting that is that sort of, you know, affirmation from the parents is so consuming. It is. It is. And it's, and it's a never ending thing. You know, I teach college uh, here in the Bay area and when I have students that come to me who they've already lived a bit, maybe they're 26, 27, which is still really young, but they've had mm -hmm. a job and they've had, uh, they've traveled a bit. They've been out in the world. They didn't take a, what we in America would call like a conventional path, right? I mean, American kids are always like, you finish high school, you go straight to college. Whereas I think everywhere else in the world, you get more texture, you, you live a little bit, then you come to college. Um, but when they come to me at 26, 27, they're far more interesting than the ones that come to me at 18 um, because mm. they've had, had experience. And I wonder for you, here you are putting out this album, which is really, it's your debut. Had you put an album out at 20, it would have probably sounded a lot different. Oh, for sure. For sure. Uh, back in the 80s, I did a 12-inch single, which actually was a, a hit in Italy. It was a high-energy dance music, and to be honest with you, I did it under the name RSVP because I was more embarrassed because this is simple music. It's like, I didn't want my name to be associated with it, but I didn't know it was going to be a hit in Italy. And at that time, there was no internet, or uh, you know, and I, I didn't even know that, that was a, it got popular until I got uh some checks in the mail from bmi uh, you know i'm like what <laughs> so yeah <laughs> like what the hell what is this for oh cool uh so that's how i found out that uh you know and then later on and then, and then people put it up on the youtube whatever i'm like oh it's interesting but you're absolutely right you know you know uh, it would have been totally different see the thing is like the album the memento uh one i just made I wanted to make a personal album. I didn't care who likes it, who doesn't like it, if it was radio friendly. It's just every song, you know, has, has a specific meaning to me. And it was just, I didn't, I just wanted to make an album for me that I am proud of. I'll, when I put, put it on, on the CD player, on my, on iTunes, whatever, uh, listen to it and enjoy it myself. You know, um, so that was uh, the reason I made it, which was a lot more pleasant than if you're, uh, when you're younger, you're trying to please your parents, please everything you want to, you know, uh, get approval. But for me, I didn't care if it, if it sold, if it was popular. I just wanted to do something that I'm proud of. And, and guess what? I am proud of it. I want to go back for a second. Um to that Italy moment where you had this hit in Italy, what did that, when you got that information, when the information came in that you had, had this sort of hit in Italy, what did you do artistically 
with that? In, in other words, did that spark anything or did you like what happened to you at that point? Ooh, that's um, a, little, that's a little bit long story, but the short version was I at that time in my life, I had a lot of responsibility, family responsibilities. Uh, I put music aside for for a few years, actually. You know, I mean, that was great to to have that feeling that you know you have a hit single. But at the same time, when I was young, I was like, again, at this at that time, still, I was like, ooh, this is. I was kind of like embarrassed from this. But later on, I'm like, why, Ian? You should own it. It's yours. You did it. You should be proud of it. But again, when you're young, you don't think like that. And, uh, and uh, you know, I would have, would have I, if I had um, continued to do the same kind of music, I don't think so. Because I would not be happy doing that style of music, that, uh, which, which was uh, a song called Cleopatra. It was about Cleopatra under the name RSVP. Um, you know, but this is actually, you know, this is a funny story. I was a bartender in the 80s and then uh, in a club, at a dance, high end, uh, dance club. And then uh, one of the customers said, uh, we were talking about music. And I said, oh, this was, I don't remember what song the DJ was playing. And I said, this is easy to write songs like this. And he, he said, oh, yeah, why don't you write one? So I went home and I wrote it. <laughs> I, I recorded on a four-track set. I bought it back. It was just instrumental at that time. I gave it to the DJ, and he played it the uh, same night. And the dance floor was packed, and everybody was dancing to my song. I was like, huh. And the DJ was like, ooh, I love this. Can I produce this with you? I'm like, sure. And then we decided what the song was going to be about. So, okay, you know, decided Cleopatra. I went to the library, looked at, checked out some books on Cleopatra, Wrote, wrote the lyrics, and uh, there you go. So that's how that happened. But it wasn't like, like I said, I was uh, oh, to me it was oh, I'm a ser- serious musician. This is simple stuff. So um, you know, I didn't appreciate it as much when I was young. That story is amazing because it's like you were trying to prove how ridiculously easy something was to do, and you did, <laughs> and you got a hit out of it. Um, that's that's so funny. I mean, a lot of people would have said, "Well, I can just crank a bunch of Cleopatras out and make a quick living doing that." And and you didn't do that. No, no, I didn't. No, because um, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, you know, because I would not be, I would not be happy with it. Or, um, well, I don't know what's the. You know, if if I if what I know now, Alex, maybe I would have done it to make some money. <laughs> right. I don't know. Right. That's, that's a different story. That's a different thing. But yeah. So again, it's interesting, isn't it? When uh, when you look back and think, I, uh, how would you do things? Do things if you knew then what you know now? Right. Again, that's part of uh, learning, the process of you know, life, and I guess we'll learn till the end. Well, yeah, that's the, that's the whole mission. Um, but it's just so funny to me to think that 
there was a sort of mocking element to it where you're like, I'll show you. Um, and then, and then you did it. Uh, and you were right, by the way, I guess it was easy when you went the other direction where you ended up putting music away for a while, that, that must've been fairly agonizing to do. It, it was, it, it was, it was like, gosh, it was tough. It was tough because I was so frustrated at the same time. It was like, in a way, uh, a love and hate relationship a little bit there because you want it so bad, but it's in the way of other things that you need to do, provide for family or different, you know, different things that you got to do. So it was difficult to let go. Yeah. I shouldn't, I don't know if I shouldn't say this because I don't want people to get the wrong idea. I, when I decided to get, stay, step away from music, I smashed my guitar into pieces as if that would have a closure of some sort or anything, something like that. You know, when you were young, again, there were emotions going, so much, so many emotions going uh, in through my mind, frustrations and things, you know. So that's what I did, actually, you know. I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that now, but that's what I did. Like, that was your way of of saying to yourself, okay, this is done for for now in your brain was that elliptical did you think like i'll get back to it or or was the smashing of it sort of did it feel kind of there was a finality to it no like because kind of finality to it but of course then slowly you're like you just can't help yourself you you want to get back you want to pick it up again you know it's just like, you know, you know, when you, when there's that part, when you're in the zone, as they say, or you're creative, uh, you're, when you're creating, you, everything, nothing else matters. You're hungry, but you still want to do your work, keep working at your work. So later on, uh, yeah, to me, it was like, a, uh, okay, that's, this is it. It's dead. I'm not going to touch it anymore. But then a few, few years passed, and I was like, I just couldn't help. But keep thinking about it. Keep thinking about it. So then again, picked up the guitar, and my sister she had bought me a flute for my birthday actually, and I always loved the flute, you know. So that was another reason because she bought me the, the flute. I started uh, playing the flute. So um, that in a way helped me to get back into music also. So the flute was like a gateway back in in a way yeah i mean it was again the guitar was always in the back of my mind you know that i want to get back into it and uh write and uh and uh, i was always fearful okay the longer i wait the worse it's gonna be my my fingers are not gonna go back the way i used to play and you know all those thoughts were coming crossing my mind um but yeah yeah so um, again hockey you know we you know when you love something you know uh it's just it's always in the back of your mind and uh you know i just um picked it back up again and then about 10 years ago uh after my divorce i went to an open mic i met my friend manda Mosier, who i mentioned earlier she's my songwriting partner 
I started working with her again. That's when I really got back into music again. And then I'm like, oh, I'm not free. It was much more relaxed as far as I didn't. Uh, that's the time when I was like, hey, I don't need to prove anything to anybody. I'm doing this for fun. Uh, and that's it. Nothing else. Not for money, not for fame, not, nothing else but just to do it for fun and do something that you enjoy. So, and that led to like, hey, why don't I make an album? Because like, when am I, when is, there's never the perfect time. Just do it. And to me, when I found, I was looking for the right producer to work with, to, that's another thing, you know, if, I, if it's up to me, I cannot mix my own music or, you know, because it will never get done. Because I cannot, uh, you know, say, okay, this is good enough. But when you, again, collaboration, when you work with other people, when Jim says, this is good, or, you know, that's, you, you give up control. Okay. Mm. He's going to mix it. Okay. Ian, stay away. <laughs> you know, that's why Jim is, he's got seven Grammys. You don't need to even think about it. Let it go. Let the man do his thing and just enjoy. Do you remember the moment, Ian, that you picked the guitar up for the first time after having not held it for so long? Well, um, yeah, I went, uh, I went to Guitar Salon International here in Santa Monica and I bought a guitar and uh, brought it home and uh, said, let's see if I can, what, what, what I can remember or not. So um, then, you know, slowly like, okay, there is hope. <laughs> there is yeah. hope and started to, you know, playing, uh, remembering the songs. And, uh, and uh, again, uh, again, slowly get it back into it, never practicing again, like, like, I don't know, like I'm going to dedicate to practice like eight hours a day, even four hours a day, for that matter. Uh, you know, just again, let's try and some, learn some new songs. When you were not an active musician, when you when you had not been playing, were you still listening to music? And were you also trying to find new music to listen to as well? Were you still an active fan of music? Oh, oh yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Always, always listen, listening to music. Yeah, I mean, you know, I would go to, uh, like, uh, there's a brand libra library here in Glendale. It's an art li library. And I believe, believe west of Mississippi, they have the biggest selection of uh, vinyl and CDs in the United States. So I would go there, spend hours, just randomly picking up CDs checking it out from the library, bringing it home, listen to it, take it back. If I liked something, I would actually purchase the CD to support the artist. Right. You know, so yeah, always, uh, you know, I, yeah, because uh, for, if nothing else, just for inspiration, I, I always uh, search for new music. Even though lately it's more difficult because, you know, I don't listen to the radio anymore. You have to actively search to find music that inspires you. There's a lot that you listen to that does not inspire, inspire you. You're not interested. You know, like recently, like, you know, I've been into Billie Eilish for the last couple of years. And to me, that's amazing because she's only... At that time, she was like, I don't know, 15, 16 years old. Yeah. Here is a kid, 16 years old, 
inspiring me at this age, which is nice. Yeah, it's very cool. Yeah. But, you know, it's there's a part of me that is, you know, unabashedly competitive. And like, you know, you weren't playing music, but you were actively listening to it. I would imagine that that would have there were moments for a guy who spent so many years picking apart songs and and learning them that your brain was probably still doing that and there must have been the urge to play that you were that you might have even been resisting probably probably yeah but there was no guitar in the in the room <laughs> right <laughs> you were you, I yeah. broke it <laughs> but but yeah, yeah, because your mind is always thinking, you know, always uh, analyzing when I listen to music or or always looking for inspiration, you know, if, if, from anywhere, you know, from a song that you hear on the, on the radio. So even at the time when I was not playing, you know, I might listen to something or I might hear somebody say something in my mind, I would be like, Ooh, that's a good title for a song. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So yeah, it's always in the back in the back of your mind, sure. But you you remind me so much of like um Odysseus uh when when they're when they're sailing past the sirens and he's like, tie me to the mast because I'm gonna fall for it. Um, you know, <clears throat> put the wax in my ears because I don't want to hear it because I I'll I will definitely be seduced by it. You knew you had to remove temptation from your house. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, would I do it again if I if I went back? I would. Say, I hope not. Right, right. But I would say, isn't it true that that in many ways what we were talking about earlier about the time that you're not playing is as much a part of the process? So in many ways, that was also instructive for you, and as part of the journey, you know, maybe you wouldn't be the way you are now had you not taken that hiatus. Probably, Alex. Yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, and uh, it is part of it, part of uh, your growing, learning, and part of uh, knowing. Oh, wow! How much that is important to you, right? By not playing and coming back with it from a different point of view, you know. Yeah, you're right. How many guitars are in the house now, Ian? Ooh, <laughs> well, <laughs> it's funny because there's few, uh, I don't know, maybe there's about 10, 12 guitars in the house. Okay. And there are some guitars that I haven't even don't play, but it's so difficult to get rid of guitars for me. It's like they're attached to it, it's weird. But yeah, I got a few 12 strings. I love the sound of the 12 string. So mesmerizing. A few classical you still 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 string um uh, i got my 1967 guild bass starfire which mm. uh, i bought gosh back in the early 80s yeah i never was a bass player but uh but i mean you know uh, per se i wasn't a bass player but that's the one thing i forgot about that yeah so like a, the bass or the flute is interesting even though i had the bass in the closet all these years but it's not an instrument uh, that you want to put, take out and play another for me for example flute uh, or the harmonica it's not fun to 
play by yourself. You have to have either have a, a play with some other people at the band or have a, at least have a uh, play along with music, you know? So bass, even though it was in the house, I never picked it up because, I don't know, it's like, I, I guess I didn't even have an amp at that time, but yeah. So that's interesting. I, so there was uh, uh, an instrument in the house all those times. <laughs> yeah, lur lurking uh, in the closet. Yeah. Yeah, in, in the closet, yeah. I love that you are a fan of music, that you have uh, to have an album with the Doors, the Bee Gees, the Coral all represented, um, you know, really um, is a is a compliment for how willing you are to listen to anything. Um, but I'm really particularly struck by the Coral and who's mm -hmm. a band that I, I really love. They're, to me, they are a really interesting, complex band who could have written just three-minute pop songs and cashed in on it for mm -hmm. the last 15 years and, and didn't do that. Um, what is it about them that, that drew you to that number? And what do you think of that band? Well, they're great. I mean, I love the album Magic and Medicine, which uh, yeah. Liza is on it. You know, again, the British sound. I mean, um, yeah, Liza, as soon as I hear it, it takes me back to the time that I lived in, in England. 70s, 7, 8, 9, I lived in England, in Manchester, England. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's, 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 again, because as a personal album, the Liza was a song that took me back, took me back to the time I spent in England, even though that was, came out in the, what, early uh, 2000s? Yeah. But, um, uh, again, it's just, I love the song, so... And it uh, struck a chord in me because of my own journey. Uh, like I said, as soon as I hear that song, it takes me back to uh, my time in England. I know so, that you had a your journey in life has been uh, a really interesting one. Do you think that? I mean, geographically, you were a lot of places. In your opinion. Is home something external or internal? Definitely internal. Yes, this is the thing. It's interesting that you ask me that because uh, I never belonged, no matter where I lived, in the Middle East, in, the Euro in Europe. Even here in some ways, you know, I mean, I, don't get me wrong. I the thing is, no matter where I am, I've always, no matter where I lived, I always found friends because of music. Right. But, you know, I don't know, you know, being a Christian, I was born in a, in a Muslim country it was like, oh, you know, it's always felt different. You know, I went to Europe and England. Oh, you know, it's not the same. There was always that part like uh, you never belonged. So I, in all my life, I never I as home. I traveled so much. So where is home anyway? So at one point, it's like, okay, you know, you know, it's just funny because some people ask me, where, where are you from? I say I'm from Ian land. <laughs> and of course, some of them like say, oh, where is that? <laughs> I'm like, you're looking at it. I'll declare my body to be my home, my country. So 
Yeah, I mean, that's the uh, finally, oh, finally, yeah. Uh, yeah, I am my home. I am my country, you know. So that's the way I look at it now. I love that. It, you're like an amalgamation of experience. And even though the answer sounds like you're being you're being funny, it to your friends, it actually is a really serious response in the sense that I am a cumulative uh, total of my own experiences. Um, which make up Ian, right? right? And exactly. Um, so, so home is internal. Yeah, it's interesting. I I like hearing you say, even though I know it's uncomfortable sometimes to to not feel that you belonged. I feel the same way. I've never felt that I've been a part of anything or fit in anywhere. Um, mm. And so, it's interesting to hear you say that, and also comforting to hear that there are many people like us who who don't feel. Like we're a part of things, but then we meet people who feel the same way we do or create the same way we do. And that there's a kind of home element in that, in that friendship. Yes, you're, you're right. You're right. It is uh, comforting to know that. And yeah, I mean, uh, you know, just like you, you're a music lover, obviously, you know, and in a way we're like, oh, music could be home also, you know. That's right. And uh, because, yeah, we relate to it. You know, when you find, you know, it's like, especially when they're sometimes like, for example, like the band that I love a lot, Camel from England, they are not that popular in the States. And then all of a sudden you, you talk to somebody, they, they know about the band. And all of a sudden you're like, hey, buddy, you know Camel. All of a sudden you <laughs> found somebody of good, you know, you don't know the people person but you're like oh you're my friend period in california growing up in high school in the 80s you could it was tribal in the sense that you could tell who listened to the smiths you could tell who listened to judas priest just by the way they dressed dressed you know and you would find <laughs> yeah. your people so like you know at lunchtime the goths or the mods or the or the, the people listen to metal they would all congregate mm -hmm. in their own campfires um, mm -hmm. It was really easy to find those people. It's not as easy anymore because of, you know, the way that styles and fashion and trends have all sort of blended. Um, but yeah, you're right. In those days, it was like, oh, you know, you listen to Camel. I listen to Camel. That's so cool that we found each other because not a lot you're of people right. do, right? Mm -hmm, uh, absolutely. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, well, Ian, I you know I appreciate the chat and i i gotta say man like your your music really knocks me out and i'm i'm somebody who traffics in words because i'm a i'm a writer and to listen to this music and to be so moved by the by the lyrical element of your playing is has just been nothing short of of soul stirring for me um and i just it's so gratifying to be able to tell you that um in person well thank you so much you know when i hear people like you uh, say what you just said it's so encouraging because now, like, like I said, I, I did this album. It was a personal album. Did it for me. But when I hear you say that, it makes me want to like, oh, let's go make another one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, make more. Uh, I imagine there's a there's a, a long and fruitful career in front of you, and I uh, congratulations on on the beautiful album. And I think 2020 is going to be a, a massive year for you, my friend. Oh, uh, thank you so much, Alex. Thank you so much.
Oh, hang on a second. My, uh, my eight-year-old daughter is knocking on the door. It's her birthday, and she wants me to come down. It's like, get over yourself. Everyone's had an eighth birthday. Big deal. I'm not going to answer. I'm going to speak very quietly until she goes away. <laughs> if you didn't hear the first part of the podcast, you're like, what a monster. Uh, no, even just pretending uh, feels terrible. I don't know how all those American authors lived with themselves, uh, if any of that really actually happened. Uh, Ian Goth, what a lovely guy. Um, really, just a terrific fellow, as you heard, and his album is marvelous. It is just something else. I'm telling you, go get it. Wherever you get music, go get it. And go to Ian's site, iangoth.com. Uh, that's G-O-T-H-E. It just occurred to me I might be pronouncing his name incorrectly. Uh, but if I am, I suck. I should have looked into that. Uh, but I think it's Goth, G-O-T-H-E. Uh, it might be Gotha. I don't know. Uh, but uh, I think you got the gist of who Ian is. And uh, by me, maybe mispronouncing his last name, uh, now you know who I am. Uh, too lazy to check into these things. God. Uh, well, it was my daughter's birthday. What do you want me to do? I'm, you know... I'm busy hiding from her. Go to my website, alexgreenonline.com. All the information about me is there. Uh, lots of stuff coming up. I'm going to be revealing some uh, fairly big news fairly soon, uh, which is not my way of keeping you listening to the program. Uh, it's my way of saying I have big news and I'll be debuting it soon. So you should keep listening to the program. Uh, you can also follow me on uh, all the apparatuses that are available to you on social media. Why am I taking so long to say that? Twitter at Ember's Editor or on Instagram at Ember's Podcast or just email me editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com Stereo Embers the podcast is available on all podcast platforms so go to the one that makes you feel most comfortable and uh, subscribe for free leave a nice comment maybe, uh, I don't know, send a, a mint, a moist towelette and uh, a wad of money uh, my way, and I would really appreciate that, uh, especially the moist towelette. You can also find information about Bombshell Radio. Just go to bombshellradio.com. It's all there. You'll find out what makes us tick, and uh, I think you'll be very intrigued by who we are. All right, let's close the show with another new song from Ian Goth's new album, Memento. This is a real stunner. Maybe my favorite song on the album, if hard-pressed to pick. I might pick this one. It's Blood on the Rooftops in Montrose. Enjoy it. Thank you, as always, for listening. And I'll see you next time right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast only on Bombshell Radio. Bombshell Radio.